By now, you've probably seen ads about the water contamination at Camp Lejeune everywhere. People who got sick after drinking that toxic water are now able to seek repayment for their medical costs because of a new law, the PACT Act. What those other ads don't tell you is that because the PACT Act is a fresh law, it's important to find an attorney who understands the new claims forms. There is a limited time to file your Camp Lejeune claim, so you need a lawyer who can get it right the first time. The experienced team of attorneys at SickMarine.com is ready to file your claim. They will fight for you and they won't take no for an answer. Sign up at SickMarine.com. episode 88 of En Route. This is the podcast um, at the intersection of church and Maine, where we talk about religion, especially uh, mainline Protestantism, and where it intersects with culture. My name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. We had originally planned that uh, to have a guest on this episode, um, but that guest had to reschedule. And I still wanted to do an episode because we haven't done one in about a week. Um, so I thought we would do um, a solo episode. Um, I still want to talk to some people about um, the whole Supreme Court abortion issue, um, but I wanted to kind of share some of my views. And then I wanted to wrap it up with um, an issue that has become a, will be an issue um, with the Episcopalians later this summer. So first, let's talk about what's happening um, what's happening with basically with what's going on, uh, with the Supreme court. So, um, I've always wanted, when I talk about abortion, I need to kind of qualify, quantify or qualify this, um, by saying, um, I'm a guy, um, and so I don't understand all the things that deal with pregnancy or um, having um, children. Um, so what I'm about to say is has to be taken from that perspective. Um, and I guess I say that because I want to be respectful and um, know that I don't have all the answers, but I also don't want to pretend that I do or that I know better. Um, I know that there are things about it that I, abortion that I think aren't great. Um, and those are my viewpoints, but I feel like I always have to qualify that with the phrase that I'm a guy and that it has to come from that viewpoint. And I have, because it's, I'm a guy, I have to at least hopefully try to share what I'm going to share with humility, um, not pretending that I know everything or that I'm better and, um, to kind of go from there. So as we all know, the, um, there was a leak um, of a draft and I have to, uh, really stress that there was a draft decision of um, a decision uh, in Miss of a case out of Mississippi that was heard before the Supreme Court in fall, uh, and the initial draft, which it's and this again was a draft, it came out in February, made it look like there were enough votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now there are a few ways, of course, that this could go, and I think everyone has thought that this case would probably be decided in the affirmative. The question is, would it be a narrow ruling or would it be a wide ruling? Um, the narrow ruling would have upheld the law in Mississippi uh, that would uh, ban abortions after 15 weeks. The wider ruling would have just overturned uh, Roe v. Wade. It looks like the draft, which was written by Justice Samuel Alito, 
was going for the maximum the of overturning Roe v. Wade. Of course, this caused very predictable um, responses um, from both sides of this debate. Um, for those on the left um, and pro-choice, it was basically getting ready for the apocalypse. For those on the right, for pro-life, this was everything. It was Christmas Day, um, their birthday, and um, Halloween all wrapped up in one. Being who I am, I always have had some, some questions about abortion. Um, I guess I, if I had to put myself in a box, um, I would say that I'm mildly pro-choice. And I know I've gotten some pushback by saying mildly. But what I mean that is um, that on some level, I do think that there should be a right to people to have an abortion. But I also think that that right, there, I don't have a problem with some restrictions regarding that right. And the reason I believe that is because <clears throat> um, when you're trying to end a pregnancy, it's not simply just removing a clump of cells. Um, you are actually also taking potential life. And maybe that's necessary. I'm, I'm not going to say it's not, but I've always believed that you have to know what you're doing. And it's what you're doing is at least ending potential life. You're not just removing a clump of cells that you have uh, that are growing inside of your body. So that's kind of where I'm at. And But I also think that I don't think... When it comes to how women's lives, it's not, everything is not always so cut and dried. And there are times that I may not personally want someone to get an abortion, but maybe they have to. Um, I think personally, I would much rather see the United States adopt abortion laws as they do in Europe, um, which allows for abortion usually up to about 20 weeks, and then after that, it is severely restricted unless it's, you know, for the life of the mother. Um, but we are not that type of nation where we could hammer this out um, because, unfortunately, we're absolutists on both sides. Um, increasingly, you have a pro-choice side that wants to have abortion all up to the moment of birth. Um, and then you have on the other side, um, pro-life people who are increasingly um, wanting to have no exceptions whatsoever. Um, and both of them bother me. Um, having, as I see in some pro-life people, abortions all the way up to the ninth month to me says what's growing inside of you doesn't matter or that it's it's just a uh, cells or or things that don't matter but on the other hand to have no exceptions to abortion is basically treating the woman as a a machine that it doesn't matter about that person's life it doesn't matter about that person's own health. It's just that if there is a baby going inside them, they no longer matter. And I don't think that either are good. But I think that in such a polarized society that we live in today, that's where we are, is that we are going, we want kind of maximalist laws and life. And I think that that's where we're headed. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm worried about what will happen um, if what was a draft holds. Um, 
how will we this operate? I think everyone likes to want to talk about that if um, Roe v. Wade is overturned, it goes to the states. And that's truly what does happen. It goes to the states. But we make it sound like it's going to be something that's going to be easy once that happens. And I think that that's not going to be easy. I think federalism is a good thing. I, I really do. But I also think sometimes we look at federalism without really thinking about it, thinking through it. Um, it's always good in theory. It's not necessarily good in practice. Um, to say that there are going to be states where they're going to have um, a right to an abortion and states where they're not, well, what happens if you live in a state where it doesn't? Um, are you going to have to move? And if you're, what if you don't have the resources to move? Um, like I said, I think sometimes we always like to think federalism works and, and it's a wonderful thing. And I, I don't want to say that it isn't. It, it, it can work. I um, think it is a worthwhile system. I would rather have that than a, a kind of a unitary system. Um, but it isn't perfect. And on issues as fraught as this, usually it's not going to just stay um, with people kind of being on one hand um, and we're all going to live in our little experiments of democracy. Um, I mean, there's already right now among some in the pro-life movement, not all, but some who don't want to, if, you know, stop at, leaving it to the states. They want to have a national, a federal uh, law that would ban abortion. So, you know, pushing this to the states doesn't mean that it's going to solve everything. In fact, it could make things a lot worse. So the question I think I also have is what do people of faith have to say about this? Um, and, you know, I put in the show notes that there are kind of pastors who live in red states who are probably more liberal pastors um, that are in support and in favor of it. Um, they are parts of organizations like, let me, let me rephrase that because I, I didn't really explain. They are, they are supportive, they are pro-choice, so they are, are wanting to help women um, and they are part of groups like uh, the Coalition for Reproductive Choice um, and other things to that extent. It's always interesting, and, I, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I always think um, when it comes to those in the church and, and it, who might be pro-choice like myself, is do we think, about, think this through? You know, what is the the Christian viewpoint on this? Are we just going to kind of adopt what is the kind of the wider culture's view? Um, which, as I said before, in some cases is abortions all the way up to the ninth month. Or are there places where there should be restrictions? I think that as Christians, um, especially those of us who are pro-choice, we have to really think through what what is moral. Um, and again, for me, it's we're dealing with two people, the unborn or potential child and the woman. And we have to kind of figure out and balance those two out. And, and sometimes we have to, it has to be in favor of, of the unborn child, and sometimes it has to be in favor of the woman. And I think sometimes with pro-choice pastors, it's like I don't always hear what are the limits. Where are we counseling that this is not where we should go as um, as people of faith? It always kind of seems like we're just kind of following along, um, like we're just kind of just going to be there to be the chaplains, but not really question anything. And I I don't think that that's really a faithful look or faithful way of acting when it comes to this issue. Um, I think, yes, we, we do have to be there uh, for women in, in these situations. 
But I also think we have to really think through, when is it right to do this as Christians? When is it maybe not advisable that someone have an abortion? Um, do we say it's okay for someone who is seven months pregnant to have an abortion? Um, I don't know. But I wish, I wish I, I guess I would hear that more. Maybe it's happening and I just don't see it. But for more pro-choice pastors, I never hear kind of what are the limits. Um, when you're kind of dealing with, with the, this type of a fraught issue, there, there should be some sort of place where, you know, this is where you're going to go and because this is what you believe, but this is not where you're going to go because that's going too far and this is, it goes into this kind of place that we think is wrong. And um, I would like to hear more more thought is, I guess, what I'm getting at, because it feels too often that what we're doing is just kind of following along what the culture tells us to do. So now that I've pissed off um, my liberal friends, I'm going to go to the other side. I've been fascinated by, um, because I grew up as an evangelical, really how much that movement has changed over the years and not for the better. Um, there seems to be more and more of a kind of a maximalist viewpoint and it's just kind of going to the farthest way possible and it's just kind of disturbing so one of the things I wanted to do is to share something that I found interesting. I think I heard this on the Holy Post podcast. And so I kind of also did some digging myself of kind of the journey for the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, in the last probably 50 years, they've made actually a very big change. Um, and I'm so I'm going to read actually some of their resolutions over the years. Um, and I want to kind of just to show kind of where their trajectory is, but I think the way that I want to do this is to start with the most recent one, uh, that was passed in, um, 2021 at their annual convention, um, in Nashville. Um, and so they, this was, um, the resolution that was passed I think it's important for me to say, um, to tell you, there were nine, um, well, one, this resolution was focused on abolishing or the abolition of abortion. So let's go, go with that. Um, this was, had nine co-authors that brought it forward. And I want to share their names, and there's a point to this. There is William Askell, Brett Baggett, David Van Beber, Blake Gideon, Derek Holloman, Dave Huey, John Speed, Darren Stid, and Russell Threet. As you can know, notice, they are all men. That's a bit disturbing. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think that if you don't want to be kind of tarred as kind of, I don't know, um, sexist, maybe you want to throw in a woman in there somewhere, because we all know there are pro-life women, so... But they didn't, so there you go. <clears throat> so they put in this resolution. Um, and this is going to probably, I, I will say, um, was pretty hardcore. There is nothing nuanced. There is nothing that they hold back. Um, 
you know, of course, they talk about abortion as a Holocaust. Um, so let me read some of it. I'm not going to share all of it. Um, the, I, I should also add one of the authors called it, called uh, regarded um, abortion as child sacrifice. So, of course, it can't be uh, regulated. It has to be eliminated immediately. And um, the important thing here is without compromise. So let me read some of this. Um, this is the um, resolution on abolishing abortion um, that was adopted at the annual meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, on June twenty, June sixteenth, nineteen or June twenty sixth, twenty twenty one. So whereas. From the moment of fertilization, all humans are created in God's image, by, through, and for Jesus, to the glory of God, and all souls belonging to him. Whereas as God's image bearers, all humans both display his divine worth, power, and attributes, and possess equal objective worth before God, not varying based on incidental characteristics such as ethnicity, age, size, means of conception, mental development, physical development, gender, potential, or contribution to society. Whereas to murder any preborn image bearer is a sin, violating both the natural law of retributive justice as set forth in the Noahic covenant, as well as the Sixth Commandment forbidding murder, and as such is ultimately an assault on God's image, seeking to usurp God's sovereignty as creator. Um. Let me, I'm skipping a few things here. Whereas in 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States rendered an iniquitous decision on Roe v. Wade, and in doing so deprived the innocent of their rights and usurped God, who, so, who sovereignly ordained their authority, Whereas the Roe v. Wade decision, the Supreme Court of the United States subverted the U.S. Constitution, namely the preamble, as well as the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments without any legal authority. Whereas governing authorities at every level have a duty before God to uphold justice, asserting their God-ordained and constitutional authority to establish equal protection under the law for for all, born and preborn, by intervening, ignoring, or nullifying iniquitous decisions, wherein, when other authorities, such as the Supreme Court, condone such injustices as the legal taking of innocent life. Whereas, over the past 48 years, with 60-plus million abortions, traditional pro-life laws, though well-intended, have not established equal protection and justice for the preborn, but on the contrary, appallingly have established incremental regulatory guidelines for when, where, why, and how to obtain legal abortion of the innocent preborn children, thereby legally sanction an abortion. And keep here going here. Resolved that the messengers of the SBC meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, June 15th and 16th, 2021, do state unequivocally that abortion is murder, and we reject any position that allows for any exceptions to the legal protection of our preborn neighbors, compromises God's holy standard for, of justice, and promotes any God-hating partiality. And be it further resolved that we will not embrace an incremental approach alone to ending abortion, because it challenges God's lordship over the heart and conscience and rejects his call to repent of sin completely and immediately. And be it further resolved that we affirm that the murder of preborn children is a crime against humanity and therefore must be punished equally under the law. And be it further resolved that we humbly confess and lament any complicity in recognizing exceptions that legitimize or regulate abortion and of any apathy and not laboring with the power and influence we have to abolish abortion and be it further resolved that the Southern Baptists will engage with God's help in establishing equal justice and protection for the preborn according to the authority of God's word as well as local and federal law and call upon pastors and leaders to use their God-given gifts of preaching, teaching, and leading with one unified principal prophetic voice to abolish abortion.
and be it finally resolved that because abolishing abortion is a great commission issue, we call upon governing authorities at all levels to repent and obey everything that Christ has commanded, exhorting them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and faithfully executing their responsibilities as God's servants of justice and working with all urgency to enact legislation using the full weight of their office to interpose on behalf of the preborn, abolishing abortion immediately without exception or compromise. So that is the resolution. Um, now what I want to do is I want to read the resolution that was passed in June of 1971. So this was 50 years earlier. This was one of their, this was actually the first resolution they had on abortion. Um, as you notice, the date in June of 1971, um, was two years before um, Roe v. Wade was um, um, decided. So this is where they were at um, in 1971, at least when it came to um, this resolution. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first resolution from June of 71, and then I'm going to read um, the second one is from June 1974, so, of course, that was um, a year after Roe v. Wade. So, uh, let's start here with um, 1971. That one was a resolution on abortion, which was adopted at the SBC convention June 1971. Whereas Christians in American society today are faced with difficult decisions about abortion, and whereas some advocate there be no abortion legislation, thus making the decision a purely private matter between a woman and her doctor, and whereas others advocate no legal abortion and would permit abortion only if the life of the mother is threatened, therefore be it resolved that on this, this convention express belief that society has a responsibility to affirm the laws of the state, a high view of the sanctity of human life, including fetal life, in order to protect those who cannot protect themselves, be it further resolved that we call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. So that's the 1971 resolution, which is a lot shorter. And so this is the one from 1974. So three years later, it was passed. And um, this is a year, well, a year and a half after Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> so resolution on abortion and the sanctity of human life adopted at the SBC convention, June 1974. Whereas Southern Baptists have historically held a high view of the sanctity of human life, and whereas the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention, meeting in St. Louis in 1971, adopted overwhelmingly a resolution on abortion, and whereas that resolution reflected a middle ground between the extreme of abortion on demand and the opposite extreme of, of all abortion as murder, and whereas that resolution dealt responsibly from a Christian perspective the complexities of abortion problems in contemporary society, therefore be it resolved that we affirm, reaffirm the resolution of the, on the subject adopted by the messengers of the St. Louis Southern Baptist Convention meeting in 1971, and be it further resolved that we continue to seek God's guidance through prayer and study in order to bring about solutions to continuing abortion problems in our society. So those are the two from the 70s. Um, and, and there are several others. I mean, they. I'm, I'm actually looking at a page, which I will share, that goes all the way into the, to, I think, the 2009 of the abortion and abortion. Uh, of course, I'm going to be biased. And... I think that the 71 and 74 resolutions were far more thoughtful, 
far more understanding and I think trying to seek a middle ground um, understood that abortion is not an easily black and white issue. Um, no, if you read the 2021 resolution, besides it being incredibly long, it's, you know, I think it's hard when you, you hear that there should be no compromise, no exceptions for abortion. So, you know, what does that mean? You know, are we saying then that it's, we have to, a woman who is raped has to have the baby um, and carry it to term or incest and must carry it to term. Or that if they are in a case where they might die, well, sorry, sucks to be you. You're going to have to have that baby. I, I, I guess the thing is, it's fascinating because, you know, there's a lot of God talk in the, in the 2021 version you know, Bible verses are supporting everything with Bible verses. And I get it. You know, it's obviously they don't have that in the 71 or 74. Um, and some people looking back at those would say that these were pro-choice and um, they were very sinful because, of course, they talked about possibilities for ex exceptions or, or circumstances for abortion. Um but I have to wonder which one is, which of these is more for a Christian? Where should we be thinking about these? And I, I know that there are people who are strongly pro, pro-life, pro who are good people. I don't want to make it sound like anyone who is strongly pro-life is somehow automatically some misogynist pig or something. That's not what I'm getting at here. But... I think that the 2021 resolution, there is really no sense of grace in that issue. It's not realistic. It's, it's dealing with an abstraction. It's not dealing with actual people. And I think that the resolutions, the 71 and 74 resolutions, were at least somewhat more willing to see that this is a hard decision. This is not easy. Um, and they have their own have their problems with abortion. They don't believe in abortion on demand, um, but and but they have a problem with the whole abortion as murder either. It sounds like even though these are far shorter, they were willing to kind of grapple with kind of what this was all about in 1974, and that they were caring about the women. And I think that when I read the 2021 one, it doesn't say anything really about the woman, the woman who's carrying this person to term. And as I've said before, the way that I look at abortion is that it's a balance between the unborn child and the woman. And, you know, if I've said that some people on the extreme pro-life, pro-choice side, you know, Sometimes I think to look at the fetus as if it's a toenail. I think that on the pro-life side, they, they seem to think that the woman is just some vessel that just carries the baby. Whether it breaks or not, who cares as long as the baby's fine. And, you know, this, this is about dealing with people's persons, not abstractions. There are people... Um, there is a woman that is carrying the child and there is a child or unborn child itself. And we have to really struggle and pray and make decisions about that. And I think what bothers me about this, this recent one is how it just doesn't speak about the situation that women find themselves in. And um, which is then why I want to bring up um, uh, this writing by um, Tish Warren Harrison, um, who is an Anglican priest, who is pro-life. But I, I think, and you know, I may not totally agree with her, but I, I, I do 
like to hear from her because one, it's a woman, but two, I think that she is willing to, she hasn't forgotten maybe that the, the compassion or the grace that is needed. And so she is someone that talks about the fact that the importance of, yes, of abortion not being a good way to do things. And um, she doesn't think it's the way to go. She is pro-life. But it's interesting that she also um, really believes that there has to be more than this. That you, To be pro-life, you really need to go whole hog and be pro-life. And let me read something from a recent article that she wrote from earlier this year, um, what she says about this. So this is Tish Warren Harrison. So women feeling that they must extinguish life in their womb in order to be admitted into the world of success, career advancement and equality with men, is a reality shaped more by sexual double standards and male-centric acquisitive capitalism than by valuing women's choices, bodies, and desires. This allows a still patriarchal society not to invest in systems that make childbearing an easier choice, a more just work culture um, that, like, that um, the, a writer suggests, but also paid parental leave, widespread av availability of lactation rooms, better access to maternity care, affordable health care for children, and government-subsidized child care. Abortion is often seen as a needed safety net for poverty, but this leaves the root causes of poverty, especially female poverty, unaddressed. We do not have policies in place like a living wage or effective child support laws that help single mothers stay financially afloat. Recent Gallup data shows that a majority of people, 53%, who make under $40,000 per year identify as pro-life as opposed to pro-choice. Increase in income levels correlates with supporting abortion, with the wealthiest least likely to identify as pro-life. Yet about half of women who get abortions live in poverty. So what she is getting at is, and, and I think what, what's great here is that she's bringing up the problems that women face, um, especially when they're dealing with maybe a problem pregnancy, that they're still dealing with, you know, misogyny, that they're still dealing with how hard it is to raise kids in our society. Um, that there are certain things that we don't have um, in our society that could make it easier for women um, to bear children. And that sometimes abortion is the way to kind of keep you out of poverty, at least to not keep you poor. Um, you know, I think earlier last year, it was interesting and in, um, one of the things that was a test, it was both a test project, um, was to have, um, and I think it was as a result of one of the many COVID relief bills passed in Congress that would have a child um, tax credit. Um, but instead, I mean, we do have those, but the way that they are, they operate now is um, you have to wait till the end of the year. And this would basically do it in a monthly um, time. Uh, basically, you would get paid so much a month based on how many children you have. Um, there's been a lot of evidence that this reduces poverty. Um, and um, so for, for several months last year, lots of families were getting money from the government um, to help with childcare expenses. Um, Sadly, it did not get extended. Um, also, um, Mitt Romney, a Republican from um, Utah, also put forward um, a child care or child subsidy. Um, probably another way of, of saying that, uh, besides tax credit. Um, 
you know, this was kind of in a lot of ways amazing and and of a Republican putting something forward like this. What was fascinating was I didn't hear, especially at least in Washington, people who would consider themselves pro-life coming forward and supporting this. This would help with kid with women to be able to pay and to keep up with kids. So maybe if they had a, a problem pregnancy or a, an unplanned pregnancy, they wouldn't have to worry about how they were going to feed the child because they knew that, that there would be some money available to help. Um, but no one picked that up. And I think that um, Tish Warren Harrison is right that if we're going to be pro-life, if we're going to say that we shouldn't have abortions or abortions aren't a good idea, then we need to work for a society that really helps mothers. And I think that that's the problem with this, the 2021 SBC resolution, is that it doesn't seem to care about the situations that women find themselves in. And there are still, I will admit, still issues. Women are, you know, they are in more jobs and everything I think they are far more equal than they used to be, but let's just be honest. Women, we are we don't as a society support women when they have kids. We just don't. And I think if we're going to if say that you know, abortion's wrong, then we need to find also ways to help the women who do have children. And I think that if you propose something like this resolution that was came out last year that says all this stuff about how wrong it is to kill a child, but then, I don't know, don't help the child? That's a problem. And again, I am not saying that this is the case with all um, pro-life people, because I also know that there are lots of pro-life people who want to see this or who volunteer at um, crisis pregnancy centers and they try to do things to help um, women kind of in crisis to take care of them, to go through all of that. So I, I'm not saying that this is all the movement, but I think that there's a lot of people, a lot of leaders in the movement, that this is how they see things. And that's the problem that I worry about. And so getting back to the, the, um, the ruling, what I worry about have, is happening, will happen is I, I don't see us, you know, going to a place where we're not going to... I, I worry that there are going to be laws that are coming out that will not really take the woman into account. Um, I think that we live in an age on both the left and the right where we don't really want to... Um, We're kind of greedy. We don't want to kind of limit ourselves. Um, we think we're doing what is right in our own lives. And so we're just going to kind of pull down the throttle and um, do what we can. And that is just common on all sides. And I see that happening here with abortion. I worry that we're not going to start stop at saying, let's say, that you can't have abortions after 20 weeks. I can see some states going far, you know, farther that they would find maybe mirror Texas at six weeks, or that they would leave no exceptions, um, sort of like this um, resolution. There, sometimes in our culture today, we don't think about the other person especially the other person who doesn't agree with us. And so we craft laws as if they don't exist. And then we're kind of surprised when the other side is angry at us. And I worry about that. I don't think it was good for many years that pro-choice sides didn't really even allow for, it makes sometimes some room for exceptions um, that maybe could have pleased not all pro-lifers, but some. 
And I worry that we're going to go now to the other extreme where pro-life um, leaders are going to put down laws that don't think about women at all. And that we're just going to kind of pretend as if the other side doesn't exist. Because what's more important is that we follow our conscience or follow what God says. And this is one of those issues. I, I know that especially along pro-life um, issue is that we want to make it look like, or people want to make it look like it's, it's tantamount to the issue of slavery. But it's not. And I'm not saying that abortion isn't a good thing. I think it is. It's a difficult thing. It's a hard thing. I don't always think it's it's the wisest choice. But it's not a, not the the evil of slavery either. It, it's far more gray than it is black and white. And so, because it's it's that, I think we have to handle it with a lot of care and a lot of concern, and really think about what kind of laws do we want to have, and how do we have laws that really respect everyone. Which brings me back of why I wish that we had laws like they did in Europe. Because I think that those laws do try to respect all different sides. But that is not the way that we do things here. That's not where we are at as Americans. Americans right now, we're in a maximalist mood. And we don't really give a damn about the other side. There are some people that think that once, if this is overturned, that the basically the abortion wars will end. I'm not so sure. I worry that we're actually going to be entering into a new, maybe deadlier phase of this. You're going to have a lot of angry people, um, based especially on the pro-choice side, but I could even see it on the pro-life side, especially in states like the state that I'm living in now, Minnesota, which probably will still have abortion rights, but that there may be people, because there are states around us that won't, you could see zealots here who may want to do, um, go to more drastic measures or do other things. or you know, Basically, we will not be free of debate I just wish that we we could find a way of trying to come to some resolution that wasn't so so lopsided. But like I said, that's not where we're at. I know that there are a lot of people, especially the people who passed this resolution, the SBC in, in uh, 2021, who think that they have done God's work. And I don't think, sadly, they have. And I think that the next few years are going to bring about a lot of sadness in our society. Because we don't know how to work through this issue as adults. I worry about our country. I worry about our churches. All I can do is pray that we can find a way of um, coming together. And um, I don't know, trying to work for better solutions, trying to not always demonize the other side. So that is one gay dude's version take on abortion. As I said, it's coming from a guy. So I bring it out there with a whole bunch of humility. And I don't always have the answers. And actually on this one, I don't have the answers. But I pray, I really pray that for some sense of peace, that someday that both sides can come together and that we can work this out because we need to. 
we need to find some sense of justice for both the unborn child and the mother. So, um, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do want to get to one other issue um, that has I was um, looking at and found it fascinating. Um, and that is that the um, General Convention of the Episcopal Church is going to consider a proposal that will end um, a requirement within the Episcopal Church that you had to be baptized before you had communion. This is about the whole issue about when to have communion, who should have communion. This has always been an interesting um, issue for me. Um, I think especially in my tradition as the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, because we put such a central um, emphasis on the table, we have views on what it means of who should be at the table and um, who can have communion. Um, I think it's quite common these days among many of our congregations, well, not many, but a, but some a lot of congregations where they will have kids having communion um, even before they are baptized. And usually the way that people look at this is that it is, um, this is about being uh, inclusive, that we don't want to um, send away children. And yeah, I understand that. But it seems to me that historically, the church has always um, really kind of had a ritual that baptism that communion and baptism are linked, that they aren't separated. Um, and this kind of move, whether it's in my own denomination or what I'm seeing here in the Episcopal Church, I think they're doing it for the, well, I, I think it's wrong anyway, but I think the reason especially is wrong. Um, what they want to do is... Um, really focus on hospitality. And yeah, that's important, but that's not enough. So before I go any farther, let me actually read some of this so that you understand what's going on here. So this comes from Episcopal News Service. The General Convention's Committees on Prayer Book, Liturgy, and Music heard testimony on May 3rd on a diverse selection of resolutions from proposals to add the late Bishop Barbara Harris to the church's calendar of feasts to a measure addressing anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, and or supersessionist interpretations of our lectionaries. The resolution that generated the most discussion and some of the strongest opinions was a measure proposed by the Diocese of Northern California that would repeal the Episcopal canon that requires worshipers to be baptized before receiving communion in Episcopal churches. Martin Heatley testified on behalf of Episcopalians in Northern California who researched the issue. We could not find anything in the Bible or the Book of Common Prayer that required baptism as a pre prerequisite for receiving communion, Heatley said. When priests say the gifts of God for the people of God before distributing the bread and wine, that means everyone, the diocese concluded. We all believe that all people are God's people, so it's not just the gifts of God for just baptized people. Heatley was one of eight people who testified on Resolution C-028, at the online hearing held by the bishops and deputies committees of the prayer book of the committees on prayer book liturgy and music. The Episcopal Church's canon states no unbaptized person shall be eligible to receive Holy Communion in this church. The Reverend James Richardson, a priest and ultimate clergy in the Diocese of Northern California, noted that the diocese later, later voted only overwhelmingly in support of repealing that county, while the clergy approved it by a narrower margin. I think that this speaks the, note, the canon about control and gatekeeping rather than invitation to baptism. The rest of the testimony on the resolution, however, was opposed to severing the connection between the sacraments 
of baptism and communion. Nathan Brown, a lay deputy in the Diocese of Washington, asserted that the two sacraments are intrinsically linked, while the Reverend Lee Singleton, a priest in the Diocese of Florida, called the proposal a bridge too far. The Reverend Bertie Pearson, a priest in the Diocese of Texas, said that lack of examples in the Bible is not itself a justification for ending the Episcopal Church's practice of welcoming only baptized Christians to receive the Eucharist. I think we sometimes forget the Bible is not a rule book for how we do church, Pearson said. In other Christian texts going back to the early centuries of the church, baptism and communion are clearly linked, he said. It is always the baptism baptized and the baptized alone who is emphasized. The resolution contradicts 2,000 years of church teaching and practice. Kevin Miller, a Massachusetts alternate deputy, testified, the church universal, which we claim to be a part of, has taught that baptism is the entranceway into the church. Miller and others opposed the resolution underscored that the Episcopal Church can welcome all worshipers while still tying um, communion to baptism. It can be an opportunity to teach about the importance of baptism in deepening a person's Christian faith. So, I think what I was trying to get at earlier is that we want to put this emphasis on being welcoming, um, on hospitality. That's kind of been this um, belief among not just Episcopalians, but I think within mainline Protestantism that that has been a kind of a a pull. But I think sometimes what we want to do is in, in, in our drive to be inclusive and welcoming is to kind of throw out, I think, valuable parts of, of our liturgy, of our, of our heritage. Um, I do think, you know, for many thousands of years, um, the church has actually emphasized baptism than communion. Um, that communion is something that you do, um, that is part of the baptized believers. Um, and there is something important about that. I think if you remove that, if you sever that link, um, then what is baptism all about? Um, does it matter? Um, you know, then I could just kind of continue. I could be part of a church, but I don't necessarily have to follow its rules or do anything. And I think, I think it matters. Communion matters. Baptism matters. Um, Baptism is about entering the family of God. And communion is really about that family of God coming together at the table. And while I strongly believe in inclusion at the table, I think it's it, where I, I think it's that it's inclusion of baptized believers. So gay and straight and black and white and men and women. I think all should be welcomed at the table, but they should all be baptized because baptism is the way that we enter into the into the life of faith. It is a way that of telling of God welcoming us. Um, and I think we want to just quickly just kind of say, "Well, God loves everybody, so here's some communion and have fun," because God loves you. And I and that's not to say that God doesn't love you, but. I think from even the earliest days of the church, baptism meant something, you know, and communion meant something. And I feel like we are in this age where we have to want everything, that we can't just wait. Or if someone tells us no, then it's something that's bad. Then we're, we're being, we're not being inclusive or we're being, um, exclusive and hateful and you know simply saying well it's not in the bible and um isn't a good enough reasoning i mean we know that how we look at the bible and how we look at the faith is through scripture experience reason and tradition um and tradition 
It has been a long tradition. You know, I remember learning about how people usually sometimes were baptized once during the year. Um, and so it was, you know, midnight and they got baptized and that's when they had their first communion. And this was happening back in the day in the Roman Empire. It meant something to be a part of the church. And I think that we have to help people understand today that it means something to be a part of this, of a community of faith. I think part of the problem sometimes in mainline churches is that we, we so want everyone to be welcoming that we basically make, put no barriers in it. And I think a church that doesn't have some way of, of entering in if it's just the door is open, it's too easy for people to kind of come in, come out, or to feel that actually this isn't that important. Um, because I think sometimes part of this ritual is to help understand, are you really, do you really want to do this? Are you really committed to this? And in some ways this takes away all the, the sense of, being committed, being willing to be a disciple. It just basically says, here's this nice thing. We want you to feel included. And that, to me, isn't enough. I think that as mainline Protestants, inclusion matters. Please don't, I, you know, again, I have fought for a long time as a gay man for inclusion. But... We also have traditions that we need to respect and to understand. And we can do both. We can welcome people, but also say that if you want to be a part of this part of the worship service, we want you to go through this before you're ready. Because what we do here, when we have baptism, what we do here when we have communion, means something. It's not just a nice thing. We're not just giving you a little bit of wine or grape juice, and my, from my tradition, and some bread, just because we're nice. We're doing this because it is the table of God, and we come to God's table to remember Christ's sacrifice and to partake in the bread, in the wine, and then be empowered to go into the world to preach the good news, both in word and in deed. And I think that if we just kind of, you know, communion is something that is specific. It has a specific meaning. It has a specific purpose. If we just kind of mush it down to something of kind of... Um, inclusion without really any kind of value to it, then it's meaningless. And if baptism isn't required, then baptism becomes kind of, again, also meaningless. It's, it's a nice thing, but it's not something that is important. And I think that that's what we want to get to people, helping people who aren't part of the church understand that these traditions that we do are important. And too often we want to get rid of those traditions and then we're shocked that people don't stay because we have given them no reason to stay. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward, hopefully next week, to talk to someone who is an Episcopal priest about their view. I already know their viewpoint. It'll be, I'm kind of waiting to hear what they're going to say. Um, and probably will say it a whole lot more shine, more easier than I was trying to struggle to get out um, today. So I hope people understood what I was trying to get at um, here. This means something, um, and I just think that we need to respect that and not not be cute and and not be so wanting to welcome everyone that we water ourselves down to nothing. Um, 
we don't want to not have people worship with us, but we also want them to understand that there are traditions that are part of this faith that are, are important. And that if they want to be a part of this community, we would welcome them to enjoy, be a part of these traditions about of these practices. Um, to understand what this is all about and to understand what it means to be a Christian. Because I think if we don't have a, if a Christianity is just that God loves us and there's nothing really, any meaning to our traditions and rituals, then why do we have church? Well, that is it for uh, this week. Um, hopefully next week I'll be doing some inter a few interviews with a few different people on various issues. Um, and so this week has just kind of been a lull and I would hope that we were going to have um, someone to talk to, but didn't turn out. Um, I hope that you're enjoying spring. Uh, spring here in Minnesota has been late. It's finally, I think, warming up where we're going to actually have warmth. Um, it's been a rather cold spring, so I'm, I'm looking forward to some warm weather here in Minnesota. So um, just a reminder that um, if you're listening to this podcast, um, I hope that you consider leaving a rating. Um, you can do that on whatever podcast um, platform that you um, are listening to this at. And um, please consider leaving a four or five star review. Uh, that would be helpful. Um, also, just to um, remind you, um, if you have any questions, um, you want to talk to me, you can send me an email at reverendpodcast at gmail.com. And then also, finally, consider uh, subscribing to um, our YouTube page. Um, I try to put up a video version of this. So hopefully actually this will be a video, um, that will show up. And so I hope that you will, um, watch them, subscribe and, um, pass them along. So that is it for this week, uh, for episode 88. Um, I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. This has been En Route, the podcast that is at the intersection of church and Maine. Take care, everyone, and Godspeed. See you soon. Mm -hmm.